Hello, hello, hello. Broadcasting to you here from a very snowy Stockholm, Sweden. It's me, Nicholas. Um, what have I been up to of late? I have been reading a lot due to the weather outside and it's horrific. It's snowing intensely, keeping us caved in like people moving from A to B in the quickest way possible. And as such, I tend to just furrow my brows and read a lot while on the subway or moving in whichever way possible. Um, actually, one of the books that I have read quite recently is called Swayed, the Authorised Biography. It's by David Barnett. And it is a book that has covered Suede, the band. Uh, it was also called Love and Poison as, as its first conception, but then it got edited and is a quite revelatory read. It's uh, a bit of a hagiography. It's drug abuse, wasted time. It's also a funny read about a band that exploded from, like, abject poverty into extreme fame, mainly thanks to the intense partnership between... Bernard Butler, guitarist and songsmith, and Brett Anderson, singer and songsmith. The author, Bonnet, is a super fan who later joined the Suede Party, and he, uh, he was quite bitchy throughout. It was really fun to read, and uh, occasionally got me to think, okay, when will his self-obsessed ass get edited the right way? Sadly, well, you know, he edited... Uh, it, everything himself. I don't think anything is edited by any kind of publisher, really. Um, and he's annotated his first words from the first print of this book. Uh, but it was really funny. So there are a lot of edited pieces like this one. The then deputy editor of the enemy later confided that while he enjoyed the book, there were far too many Smith song references in it for his liking. I counted seven in the first three chapters alone, so you may have may well have had a point. And it's true. There's a lot of fun. And he takes the piss out of himself, so that's good. Um, there's a lot in the book where where the band is forming, where Mike Joyce from the Smiths is auditioning for the band. There's a lot of weird, weird stuff. And it's fun. It's it's a band that's growing up together and then suddenly Justine Freshman, uh, the rhythm guitarist, leaves the band. She is one of the driving forces and she's also a uh, boyfriend-girlfriend with Brett Anderson. But she leaves Brett for Damon Albarn in Blur. Or Chaz and Dave, as uh, the, uh, Brett actually calls him. Anyway, uh, an interesting bit is that um, there's a lot of revelatory stuff included, as I said. Uh, for instance, Simon Gilbert's journal, Simon is also in the band, um, which recans some of the most notorious uh, aspects of the band, so at the time when they completely broke up with Bernard Butler, or possibly when Butler broke up with them. It goes like this. June 6. Brett is completely pissed off at the studio, understandably. June 7. Meeting at studio with Brett Saul, Ed, Charlie and myself. June 8. Charlie went to see Bernard. Brett's obviously a paedophile because he asked Lisa her age on her birthday. June 9. Spoke to Bernard. Seems he's snapped out of it, for now. June 10. 
Butler is apparently recording all his telephone conversations. June 11. E times 4, coke times 1, acid times 2. I still the, the band got better and worse. All in all, the book's a ride, although Barnett's style is its forte as well as its curse. It's homely as well as too fanny. It's a give-and-take relationship, it gave, gives a lot of fun, but it's simultaneously like a bit like hanging out with a guest that refuses to leave your party. If you hang on, you'll be rewarded, especially if you like suede and raucous recounts. Speaking of which, there's something else coming along, actually uh, very, very soon. Brad Anderson, the singer of Suede, is releasing his own memoir called Cold Black Mornings. And here is a, a read from that by the author himself, Brad Anderson. This is a book about failure. It's a book about poverty and family and friendship and the scruffy wonders of youth. And inevitably, it's a book about love and it's a book about loss. The very last thing I wanted to write was the usual Coke and Gold Discs memoir with which we've all become so familiar, so any success in the story is implied. I've limited this strictly to the early years before anyone really knew or really cared, and so the decision to end it at the point where I have, when we're all still starry-eyed and guileless, was utterly vital in order to achieve any sense of tone. I've always loved art and artists that find a place and have the discipline to stay in it, from never mind the bollocks to music for airports from Bruegel to Warhol. I've never seen repetition of themes as being a weakness, merely as essential in establishing identity. Anyway, the bloody-mindedness quite appeals to me. To stray beyond and keep my voice fresh and void of cliché would have been impossible, and right now I have no desire to rake over those days again. This, then, is a kind of prehistory, when all that I can bring to the second half of the story is a fresh perspective. Here I'm hopefully unearthing something new, hunched over the fossils of my past, as it were. But sometimes it seems looking back can be just as valuable as looking forward, learning from the person that you were, often in the sense of how not to do things, but occasionally glimpsing those moments of wonder to which youth alone is often privy. For years I avoided writing anything, preferring the veil of silence and mystery to the inherent sense of exhibitionism contained within any such process, but for some reason I now feel the urgent need to impart. I suppose I've come to a stage in my life where I want to try and come to terms with who I am and exploring my past on my own terms like this is a way to try and achieve that. It's interesting how writing it has made me ponder the broader concept of truth. Regardless of how valiantly you try to be faithful to the facts, it will always be only from one point of view. Fascinatingly, though, others around you might see things differently or even see things the same way but choose to interpret them differently. So it's important to understand that there's no such thing as absolute truth, just perspectives. Certainly, writing it has been a wrenching experience, and revisiting those distant corridors has at each point plunged me magically back, reliving the feelings, the breathless shivers of love, the crushing pain of loss and death, and forming the words for some of the chapters has been hard and at times pushed me to tears. Reading it through, there are moments where I come across as mawkish and cloying or clingy and weak, and I see myself with a sometimes callow, anxious soul that I probably was and possibly sometimes still am, but I think at least it's honest. We stumble through life leaving an embarrassing, sticky trail, and it's often only at times of reflection like this that we realise quite what a mess we sometimes made. There are things about ushering this out into the world that scare me, of course. I can't say I'm looking forward to any gossip that might follow, 
and there's a natural fear when you expose yourself so nakedly, but effectively I've been doing that for years. Strangely, I'm less concerned about the reaction from those who have read this than the reaction from those who haven't. It's the misleading, ill-informed assumptions that I'm slightly dreading. I've learnt over the years that no matter how carefully you tread around some subjects, they will always push their way to the front like bullies and hog the headlines, denying the finer points the oxygen of publicity. It's this disparity that I suppose I will have to accept with good grace as just an unfortunate part of the process. Given these misgivings, you might ask yourself why I'm bothering, and I've asked myself the same question many times, but if you'll bear with me, I will be wending my way towards some sort of explanation. It has, of course, stirred up feelings that I've denied myself for years and has inevitably fed into my current thread of songwriting, and for that alone it's been worth it. The last two albums I've written have both been very much about family and the sense of lineage with which parenthood imbues you, and those ruminations have led me to want to take this process to the obvious conclusion. At the time of writing this, I have no book deal and no real knowledge whether anyone will be particularly interested in publishing this as it is. There's an old musician's interview cliché that worthy but unimaginative band members trot out about how they just make music for themselves, and if anyone else is interested, then that's a bonus. I'll adapt that by saying I'm writing this specifically for one person, my son, and if anyone else is interested, then that's a bonus. When he's old enough, which may be indeed when I'm no longer around, at least he'll have this to add a little bit of truth to the story of who his dad was, and the passions and privations he lived through, and ultimately, where we both came from. I think about my own father a lot, and now that he's gone, often mull over the real person that he was, teasing out little fragments of memory and picking out the bones of truth from the carcass of characterization, for which I'm probably slightly guilty. If I had a document like this to read about him and his life, I would treasure it, so hopefully, when my son is curious and eventually ready, he might one day pick this up and know that his father loved and lost and fought and felt, and hopefully that will mean something to him. Still speaking of books, another book that I thought was really, really well written was Francisco Cantu's The Line Becomes a River, Dispatches from the Border. Cantu worked as a US Border Patrol agent between 2008 and 2012. Uh, the book is an autobiography and focuses on that work and the humanism that completely envelops him. As a US Border Patrol agent, and seemingly being an open-minded humanitarian, Cantu has seen a lot of shit happen. It's not a view of the persons trying to enter the USA from Mexico as it sees the cynicism and inherent capitalism that affects non-rich human lives. It's a first-person depiction of the war ra that rages between, or from rather, the US against Mexicans. The group of nationality which is the most abused in everyday Northern America and is being thwarted from entering the US. Cantu writes about everything from finding half-dead persons dying from thirst while trying to illegally enter the USA to seeing border politics basically going from there not being a border 
to capitalism of the 1980s entering the picture, to how Bush, Obama, Trump wants it all to be, causing a state where US border patrol is made up of persons who just want to protect their country with pride while behaving like human beings toward those trying to get in the US. Still, violence and callous behavior is often normalized as is violence towards border patrol staff. What I love most about this book is how Cantu is a born writer. His level-headed style of description, rhythm and laying out facts is both seldom seen and deeply valuable. I'm left with a sense of enrichment from having read this book. And even though I've read a bunch of others that have been about trafficking around different parts of the globe, his human views and views on humans provide the reader with ample info. The slightly bad thing about this book, if I can mention one, is that the facts pile up almost like a fact after fact recount, which novice writers can be prone to delve into. Still, considering how this is the author's first book, it's a veritable two of the force which should receive a lot more press than it has. Here's an example of the short and packed sentences. Robel's eyes seemed to detach from his surroundings, as if his gaze had turned inward. A year after that, he continued, I chased another man to the banks of the Colorado River. He ran out into the water and was swept away by the current like it was nothing. And I'll tell you what I did. I swam into the river and I battled to keep him afloat, even as I inhaled mouthfuls of water, even though I can't remember having, seen, having ever been more tired. I saved that man's life, and still, there's not a single day I don't think about the one I took before it. And the writing that's not entirely about patrolling is also really good from this book. An example of that. After completing the course of fire, I shot at a smaller target with my own 22 caliber pistol. As I paused to reload, a yellow bird landed atop the target stand. I waited for it to fly off, but the bird continued flapping, hopping across the top. I started to walk downrange to scare it off, and then I stopped. I looked around. The range was empty. It occurred to me then that perhaps I should shoot the bird, that I should prove to myself that I could take a life, even one this small. I dropped the little bird with one shot. I walked over and picked up its body, and in my hands the dead animal seemed weightless. I rubbed its yellow feathers with my fingertip. I began to feel, feel sick, and I wondered for one brief moment if I was going insane. At the edge of the firing range, I dug a small hole beneath a creosote bush and buried the bird there, covering the fresh dirt with a small pile of stones. All in all, about this book, I'll say it's an easy read that may reveal more to life than you know where desperation meets bureaucracy in the most insane ways. Another non-fiction book that I've been reading, although I seem to mostly be reading non-fiction, is Erica Garza's book, Getting Off, subtitled One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. While persons who are not affected by sex addiction can find sex to be sating, loving and wholesome, a sex addict can find emptiness at the end, merely a road trotted to fill a hole, metaphorically and physically speaking, no pun intended. Quote, At 30 years old, at 24, 
even at 12, it was impossible to me to think about sexual pleasure without immediately feeling shame. I felt bad about the porn I watched. I felt bad sleeping with people I didn't like. I felt bad because of the thoughts I feasted on while I was having sex with people I genuinely loved. For as back as I can remember, this is just the way it was. My sexual habits were sick and shameful. My thoughts were sick and shameful. I was sick and shameful. Myself, I'm reserved when divulging my sex life, but God says it's not, which is for the better in this book. Just like seeing Steve McQueen's excellent film, Shame, one quickly reads through this book and knows it's, that its contents are not sexually arousing, but symptoms of what occurs in Garza's life. Far the start of this book, it is chronologically written. As such, her growing up, the introduction of the internet that projects her extremely quickly into hypersexuality, her first relationships, short sentences that describe self-damaging behaviours, it all bears the hallmarks of simplistically describing situations that have happened, much like Lisa Carver did in her diaries. Another quote. When other addicts shared about porn addiction, my ears always perked up. Porn kept us from engaging with the world. Porn distorted our perception, not just of sex, but of everything. Something so simple like standing in an elevator with, another pe with other people, or brushing up against another body on the subway, or exchanging money with a supermarket clerk. Anything really could quickly be turned into a pornographic scene by our trained, overstimulated minds. We felt numb to touch and always craved more of it. We were impatient and disinterested with the situation unless it was leading to sex. We were never really satisfied with the act of sex. It could always be better. And when it was over, we quickly wanted to discard the person. Their use was diminished. Our use was diminished. And the descriptions of being a sex addict by Garza leaves me with a sense of what I felt when watching Shame for the first time. Still, this is not a hopeless nor a shocker of a book. It's a description of life which has yet to reach midlife and the haunts that come with sex addiction. This is a very easy read, although the stories affected me. At times I was a little jolted, but mostly I kept hoping, holding my thumbs for God's sake to feel a lot better at the end. Naturally, this is something that can be felt for every human being. I give the book five out of three. One of the best non-fiction books that I read this year is called The Most Dangerous Man in America, Timothy Leary, Richard Nixon, and the Hunt for the Fugitive King of LSD by Bill Minutaglio and Stephen L. Davis. From the start, it's evident that the authors liked Timothy Leary, and still do. One of them actually met him, but even though this book is not a real hagiography, but a deep dip into one part of Leary's life, from when he was first jailed by the US government, being called the most dangerous man in America by Richard Nixon, to his fleeing the USA and later going back. It's a wild 28 month long ride based on a lot of research. To start with, the authors never got the information they asked for from the US government based on the Freedom of Information Act. Not even Leary himself received it really when asking for it in the later part of his life. Still, lots of records were found in places such as the New York Library, which the authors used to piece together an adequate picture. As such, this is a chronological fly-on-the-wall tome 
which is also an easy read. Sentences glide past, written in a kind of 1970s vernacular, which seems suitable to the entire atmosphere, even dealing with the near-psychotic Nixon, hell-bent on catching Leary, probably as a way of turning attention away from what he did to Vietnam and USA at the time, Kent State, Watergate, etc. It's fun to read of how Leary's intelligence turned Nixon's attempt to get him upside down. A quote. The government convicted him for failing to pay the federal marijuana tax, sentencing him to 30 years in prison. But Leary remained free on bond while he, he appealed, fighting all the way to the Supreme Court. In Leary versus United States, he won unanimously, defeating the Nixon administration's lawyers and striking down key marijuana laws. He celebrated his victory by declaring he would challenge Ronald Reagan in the California gubernatorial election. Don't you think I have more experience than Ronnie? Leary joked to reporters. He promised to legalize pot, selling it officially through sanctioned stores with the tax revenues going to state coffers. He said it would never live in a governor's mansion. He said it would pitch a TP on the front lawn and conduct the state's business from there. His campaign slogan, Come Together, Join the Party, inspired John Lennon to write a song for him that the Beatles recorded as Come Together. And it's really also interesting to see his charisma. There's quotes everywhere which really feed into himself, but he was quite the person who did not really see himself as the target. I mean, the main thing, almost in a keen Buddhist sense, with a wafty times of the, I mean, I mean the era of the time, the people, everybody trying to come together, forming one conscious consciousness. Uh, and then we see this. I mean, it's uh, here's another quote: "Of all the great men of the past who hold up as models," he tells tells people, "almost every one of them has either been imprisoned or threatened with imprisonment for their spiritual beliefs." Gandhi, Jesus, Socrates, Lao Tse. I have absolutely no fear of imprisonment. I know that the only real prisons are internal. Um, and then also in the book, there's a, a two other, or well, there are several, but two of the main uh, organizations, as it were, are the Black Panther Party and the Weather Underground. Uh, to kick off with uh, a quote on the Weather Underground. The shadowy revolutionary organization that went underground after the deadly townhouse explosion in Greenwich Village had just issued a declaration of a state of war on Richard Nixon. Quote from them. This is the first, first communication from the weatherman underground. All over the world, people fighting American imperialism look to America's youth to use our strategic position behind enemy lines to join forces in the destruction of the empire. We've known that our job is to lead white kids into armed revolution. Revolutionary violence is the only way. Guns and grass are united in the youth underground. Freaks are revolutionaries, and revolutionaries are freaks. Within the next 14 days, we will attack a symbol or institution of American injustice. This Sunday, there are also news reports that in Ames, Iowa, the FBI have been called in to figure out who detonated a massive dynamite bomb inside City Hall that injured nine people and blew up portions of the adjacent police headquarters. Anyway, this is what happened. On July 26, an explosion blows apart a sculpture of a Nike Ajax missile housed inside the Presidio, the iconic army base in San Francisco. 
the weatherman issued a new communique. Today we attacked with rocks, riots and bombs the greatest killer pig ever known to man, American imperialism. Uh, kicking that off, it's I won't go into the deep innards of the book as that will be spoiling it all, but it's safe to say that everything is a wild ride when Leary gets jailed the first time around in American prisons and he gets sprung from jail uh, with the help of this group and also a group called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which is a loosely held together syndicate of surfer dudes in California who just mainly wanted to get high and spread the evangelism that Leary had been proposing, mainly that LSD opens the minds and the consciousness of people and that it should be free. What they did was they bought loads of massive amounts of drugs and just let it pour onto festival partakers for free and they used a lot of their money to, to um, actually spring Leary from jail uh, and then illegally fly him abroad to Algiers where he was united with uh, Eldridge Cleaver which is uh, who's, who was one of the founding members of the Black Panther Party and there they had a base for a while until Leary fled on. The book is an insane ride, it's a lot of fun. There are There's corruption, international getaways, Nixon, uh, war, psychedelics, philosophy, love, adventure and life in total. It's firmly recommended and there's actually a podcast on it uh, that the New York Library has posted. I can recommend that fully. Uh, it's a great, great read. Okay, one last book review for you guys. It's Megan Condis has written a book which is named Gaming Masculinity. Trolls, Fake Geeks and the Gendered Battle for Online Culture. Uh, it's quite enlightening to me. I refer to myself as a feminist, which is just the textbook uh, description of what a feminist is, a person who believes firmly in equality between men, women and really all genders, as I believe. Just genders are a cultural description, it's not something you're born into, it's something you decide to become, really. And I do a spot of tiny spot of gaming from time to time and I come across often quite anti-feministic statements, uh, racist statements, anti-homosexual statements, and this book clarifies all of that. It's extremely enlightening. I mean, I work in IT and as such there's a lot of men and there's a lot of bro mentality going on. Um, people are referred to in, in the gaming world as gay, girly or brah with very different values attached and as such it gets, uh, it grows from annoying to to very, in, very invigorating and, and good when it's not condescending in any term. Um, it's, it's quite sobering and provides the book is sobering and provides a varied view on how gender is seen by persons online, trolls and non-trolls. One can separate an audience into those two quarters but what Condis is really good at, she kind of delves into stuff and, and analyzes it which is really good because I think people get their heads 
twisted when they get into this world too much anyway. So she writes us this. I propose a new internet maxim which I should I will call Bro's Law, a corollary to the famous Poe's Law, which describes the inherent difficulty in separating out actual sincere statements of extremist views from parodies of those same views. The original formulation of Poe's Law states that, without a winking smiley or other blatant display of humour, it is utterly impossible to parody a creationist in such a way that someone won't mistake it. For the genuine article. It was by Poe in 2015. It was co coined by Poe in a discussion about religion and it highlights the difficulty of coming up with an exaggerated law, uh, exaggerated uh, version that of an already extreme discourse. Uh, in his discussion of Poe's law, Scott F. Aikins remarks, the humor and point of these sorts of parody is to present religious bigotry and scientific literacy in a fashion that magnifies it and thereby highlights this vice. Um, she goes into these things really, really, really well. And it's, um, I mean, even something that's about attacking somebody online that often spans from one's own insecurities and fears. Here's, an, here's, here's another short quote. The roots of internet culture, which are steeped in what L.R. Taylor, 2012, calls geek masculinity, suggests that the game of trolling developed as a way for those male subjects who found themselves locked out of the privileges associated with successful performances of traditional masculinity in the physical world because of their failure to achieve certain masculine markers such as bodily strength and athleticism to reclaim a, sort, a, a new kind of manhood. Um, and the book contains a lot of factual pointers on how companies, even such as Microsoft, for example, have normalized a vulgar and unacceptable view of sexual violence. Here's another quote from the book. Microsoft later apologized for the off-the-cuff and inappropriate comment. That was meant to be friendly gameplay banter and not bullying and harassment of any kind. However, a fact that a phrase so commonly associated with rape might be thought of by an industry professional as friendly banter that presents that a presenter at gaming's biggest uh, trade show in North America would see no problem with directing such a phrase toward a female opponent and that many in the audience would consider this in the laugh line of the presentation point to the normalization of rape discourse in gaming culture. Certain instances where certain women have been attacked due to simply highlighting racism within the game, well, e.g. Anita Sarkeesian and Katie Sierra are brought up in the book and analysed, displaying how the attacks occurred. It's like reading a step-by-step -step play of a well-known terrorist operation, although this happens far more often than those and affects non-white males, simply because the victims are mainly non-white males. And some paragraphs are really, really well written. Here's another example. It's tempting to imagine the geeky world of online gaming as an equal opportunity environment, one where women and men exist on an equal playing field. We want to believe that on the internet, where physical bodies are unimportant in comparison to textual and technical performances, anyone can rise to the top of the social hierarchy, uh, regardless of gender. However, participants are only able to do so when they use the anonymity provided by the internet constructor persona in keeping with the new male geek chic. Girls can play alongside the boys, but insofar as they can make themselves seem 
to be like one of the boys. Queer people are welcome, so only as long as they avoid uh, work to avoid being seen as fags. Ironically, it requires a great deal of labour from both male and female participants in gaming culture to maintain a posture of effortless self-possession. Trolling is a game of aloofness and uncaring that actually requires a great deal of commitment to play. All in all, there are hopeful parts in this book also that state how changes are actually happening in the world of gaming. It would have been great to see the inclusion of analysis post Me Too, but I would have loved to see in a bit more editing to make the book not feel as fragmented as it is. But as a whole, this book is very, very needed well-written and a necessity for people to understand the gaming world of today. That was it. I've been reading a lot of stuff lately. Uh, even though a lot of non-fiction has led its way into my world, I do welcome any kind of tips of all kinds of books. Non-fiction, fiction alike, please do give me tips in whichever way. I'm on Goodreads, I'm on Anchor.fm, I'm everywhere, so seek me out, and take care, thank you for listening. certain citizens who were persona non grata elsewhere in the area because of their disgusting and disquieting performances. One was known as Spare Ass Annie. She had an auxiliary asshole in the middle of her forehead like a baneful bronze eye. Another was a scorpion from the neck down. He had retained the human attribute of voice and was given to revolting paroxysms of self-pity and self-disgust, during which he would threaten to kill himself by a sting in the back of his neck. He never threatened anyone else, though his sting would have caused instant death. Spare-ass Annie. Another, and by far the most detrimental, like a giant centipede, but terminated in human legs and lower abdomen. Sometimes he walked half erect, his centipede body swaying ahead of him. At other times he crawled, dragging his human portion as an awkward burden. He was known as Centipeter because he was continually making sexual advances to anyone he could corner. And anyone who passed out was subject to wake up with centipede in his bed. One degenerate hermaphrodite known as Fish Sam claimed he was the best lay in town. Besides, he's a perfect gentleman in every sense of the word. He's kind and good means nothing to the likes of you. Spare ass Annie. 
creatures had developed in the region where the priests carried out strange rites. They built boxes for moist, fresh bones of healthy ewes, captives from neighboring tribes. Pregnant women were placed in the boxes and left on the peak for a period of three hours. Often the women died, but those who survived usually produced monsters. The priests considered these monstrosities a way of humiliating the human race before the gods in the hope of diverting their anger. These horrible freaks were highly prized and they lived in the temple. The women who gave birth to the most monsters received gold stars which they were authorized to wear on ceremonial occasions. Once a month, they held a great festival in which everyone gathered in a round stone temple, open at the top, and prostrated themselves on the floor, assuming the most disgusting and degraded positions possible so that the gods would see they were not attempting to elevate themselves above their station. The habit of living in filth and humiliation finally occasioned a plague, a form of acute leprosy that depopulated the area. The surviving freaks who seemed immune to the plague, I decided to receive as an object lesson in how far 